Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. All right, folks, welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you're doing all right wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. And support the show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It is Friday, so I have for you another flashback episode. These flashback episodes involve me reaching into the other people archives and sharing an excerpt from a past episode of note today i am going to be looking back on episode 401 and my conversation with best-selling author hanya yanagihara hanya's most recent novel is called to paradise it was published last year in 2022 and it was a number one new york times bestseller her previous novel, A Little Life, was quite celebrated. It won the 2015 Kirkus Prize. It was a finalist for the National Book Award and the 2016 Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, and it was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Her debut novel is called The People in the Trees, and it was shortlisted for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize in 2014. So, quite a career that Hanya has going for herself. She is also the editor-in-chief, I should mention, of T, the New York Times style magazine. And when we spoke back in 2016, I was living across town in my old house, this kind of rundown Spanish bungalow. And the garage that we were in, this was the garage with 
very poor lighting and ventilation. There were wasps. <laughs> it was a it was a garage garage, and Hanya was a good sport. We had a good talk, and I'm excited to share the conversation with you. The official air date was February 24th, 2016, episode 401. And please be aware that if you like what you hear in this flashback episode, you can listen to my full conversation with Hanya Yanagahara wherever you get your podcasts. All episodes of this show are available in the feed. It's there wherever you get your shows. Look for episode 401 and you can listen to the full conversation. Okay, so let's get to it. This week's flashback episode from my conversation with Hanya Yanagahara. With this book, I got lucky. I knew exactly where I was going, and I was very disciplined about about writing. I think okay, that, so let me stop though. Yeah, what like seven hundred pages in eighteen months? Like what kind of discipline are we talking? I well, at the time I was only working four days a week, and for people who work four days a week, you know that that fifth day makes a huge amount of difference. It's like having two extra days. So Monday through Thursday, I wrote from nine p.m. till midnight, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I wrote six hours a day. And if you stick to that regularly, you can get and you know where you're going, and you really feel like you have momentum, then you can really get it done very very fast. It's not necessarily. I don't think it'll ever happen again, and it's not necessarily something I'd recommend. It really involves a sort of intensity of not only time, but quality of time that I think is thrilling in a lot of ways, but also harmful in certain ways as well. I was going to say, socially, you're not going out much if you're No, you're you're really not. You're really not. And I, you know, didn't see anyone for about a year and a half, a little bit longer. And it was... um, as I said, it's it's wonderful. Any anyone who has found themselves really in the groove of a, a creative project where you feel like the path in front of you is so clear and so unblemished, you know, by by um, by potential, you know, potholes and so on, knows that it's a wonderful sensation, and you just try to ride it for as long as you possibly can. On the other hand, it it is a sort of project, this was a sort of project where you feel that the project is really living you and you are being pulled along by this thing, I mean, not to mix metaphors too much, that really won't let you out of its grip. And that's what it felt like for this. So it was was wonderful and it was draining in ways that I didn't really realize until the book was done and published. Did friendships like atrophy, did you send out like a blast on email like... Do you email? I do email. Because we talked before that we came on the air. You don't even have a cell phone. No, I don't have a cell phone. It's, it's, you know, one of my main points of interest, I think. But I I don't have a cell phone. I do have email, but I have Yahoo, I mean, which basically counts as not having email. It's a little bit better than AOL. A little bit. It's it's, it's pretty close to CompuServe. Um, (laughs) But I, um, I, but yeah, I basically didn't see anyone for a couple of years. I saw my best friend, who's also my reader. We saw each other every Friday. Jared. Yes. And I made a point of that. But, um, but most other people, I, I, I just didn't see at all. And so when you go to work four days a week, are you able to get your mind off of the project? Like did having that day job in a project that's coming, um, you know, out of you this intensely and this quickly, did having the day job provide like a healthy balance? Yes, very much. I mean, it was a relief to get to work and shut off for those nine hours. Uh, it, 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 you know, it makes the hours spent at home much more intense, and it gives you a real clarity of, 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 of time in a way. You know, it makes you much more disciplined about time. It makes the hours that you have much more. Um, 
distilled, I suppose. Um, but on the other hand, it's wonderful to go and, you know, gossip with your coworkers and, you know, worry about billing and administrative work and, and not have to think about the life of, of the book uh, during the daytime. Because this is some intense stuff that you're covering in the lives in the book. Yes, but it's not so much the subject matter. It was that in order to create a book like this, you have the world of the book has to feel and the characters in the book have to feel more real to you than the world that you're inhabiting and and the characters in your life. And again, it's a giddy sensation when that happens. But you can also feel yourself slipping away from your own life, which is why it's helpful to have something as grounding as a job to go to, where you physically have to get up, get dressed, put on a different face, be presentable, talk to other people, and where you are no longer um, the creator of a world, but you know, but part of it. Yeah. Well, how, and how do you know with a 700-page book? I mean, with any book, but especially, I think, with, a, with a, a book as hefty as this one. How do you know when it's done? Did you know? Was it, was it final? I, I did. Um, you know, I knew the last lines before I began. I knew how it would break into parts. I had the structure laid out. So it was a very clear path for me in the way that, say, the first one wasn't. And that most of my writing, you know, when it's, uh, whether it's a, a sort of a short piece or, or you know, a 4,000-word 4, essay, is not that clear. But this book was very clear. So I knew um, I was able to really time when I would be done. I kind of knew how long it would be, and I could kind of guess when I would be finished, just kind of based on my pace. And then you would hand them off to Jared, like sections of the book off to Jared, who's like, yes. your, he's your reader. He's my reader. Are you write, my... You're writing to him? Yes, to, very much. To please him, basically. Or to impress him. I don't know if it's to please or impress, although that's part of it. It's, I suppose, a different kind of communication. I think anyone who has a reader, a single reader that they write for, is in a way trying to communicate in a different way outside of the vernacular of, of everyday chatter, you know, of, well, my life is this and, and I'm doing this and I saw so-and-so and we talked about this. When you share a novel like this, which is about friendship ultimately, it is a way of, I think, sometimes articulating what you couldn't naturally do in the course of a conversation because it would seem too artificial or too forced or too awkward. But you hope that, or I did at least, that when he was reading it, he was reading it for its text, um, but also recognizing, I, I suppose, some sort of subtextual messages that I wasn't even quite aware of. But I hoped he would be able to articulate when I wasn't. And was he able to yes, do that? Yes, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, great readers can be great readers in in different ways. I mean, some people are very good at picking up um, on the small details, on word choice, on um, on uh, sort of rhythm and, and pace. And some people are very good at the conceptual uh, questions, you know, the, the logic of the book. You know, does the character um, not only sound like he's supposed to, but does he think like he's supposed to? And some people, I think, are good at, um, at, at the sort of the construction of, of a book. You know, is it is it pacing itself well? Is it hanging together well? He happens to be good at all of those things. And so I would finish What's a section. What's his phone number? <laughs> um, you can't have him. So I, I would finish a section. I would send it to him. And he would write back with an immediate reply. He reads very fast. And then I would send him about 10 to 12 questions, some of them very granular and some of them big. And he would write back answers and also add in, in his own points. And sometimes these two are very granular, like, 
um, Thanksgiving is always on a Thursday, um, little things, little copy editing notes, um, or I'm not sure you're using the right word here. And sometimes they would be bigger. You, you know, I, I don't think that this is how Willem would sound, or um, I don't think that I'm not quite buying the sex scene here, so things like that. So that would be the first round. Then I would send him another set of questions, again, about 10 to 12, and he would answer those. And then every Friday when we see each other, we would talk about the life of this book. And so in a very real way, um, this book came out of a long conversation with him. And it does feel to me like a record of those months. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's really, I don't, you know, he read my first book as well. He reads everything I write. So I, I really don't know. At, at this point, he's so much a part of of the process of writing that I don't know how I would do it if he suddenly stopped doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, like it's not uncommon for, as, as I'm sure, you know, it's not uncommon for writers to have that single reader, whether it's a spouse or it's a friend or right. whoever it is, like somebody who, uh, understands you. Yes. Somebody who can save you from yourself. Yes. You know, when you are off track or you're off tone or whatever it might be, it's probably a, a great relief to get his feedback. It is. And, you know, it's not always, I think, for a lot of writers, someone who's their best friend or their closest companion. In my case, it happens to be. But I'm, I'm interested always in writers who, whose reader is not, is someone with whom they have a little friction sometimes, or someone who is simply their reader. They're not their best friend. They're not, you know, their lover. They're not, they have, their sole relationship is as reader. And I find those relationships very interesting. And, and what's the case? You're also friends with Jared. Yes. So it's a yes. friendship and he's your reader. Yes. And you yes. guys are tight. And this is a book about friendship. Right. Right. So it's all, it's, it's all, all of a piece. Yes. Yeah. Uh, did he change the book fundamentally or cause like I imagine with a book that comes out this hot and fast, like maybe it was mostly intact or did the feedback you get editorially from him and then from your editor, um, uh, you know, at anchor at double day, at double day. Um, did you, did the book go through massive changes editorially? Not through massive changes, but certainly the way that the characters think about friendship, the way that they think about love, the way they think about sex, many of those things, it's not that they shifted dramatically, but they definitely morphed and developed through our conversations. You know, there's a scene, there's, um, sort of a leitmotif in the book of, of um, these hyenas that chase the main character, Jude, from time to time. A cheery and, little leitmotif. Yes, a cheery <laughs> little one. And and I when, I, when it first occurs in the book, you know, Jared and I have been talking about it, and he said, I think the hyenas are sex. And he was absolutely right, but I hadn't been able to articulate what they were. I knew that they were a manifestation of Jude's fears and um, anxieties, but until he said that the hyenas to him are sex itself, I hadn't been able to articulate that. So a lot of what he was doing in the process of writing this book was really, um, I think, naming what I had on the page. And by able by, by doing that, by being able to explain to me what a metaphor meant, he was able to, um, it, it helped me continue that metaphor in some ways throughout the book. It's like telling you, it's like teaching you how to understand your own book. Yeah, completely. <laughs> yes, very much so. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What did what did the actual nuts and bolts of a writing session look like for you on this book? You have your 9 p.m. to midnight window. You yes. get home on Wednesday night. You've been at work all day. Yeah. You sit down. Uh, if you don't have a cell phone, like, do you have internet? I do, but I was pretty disciplined. When when uh, when I know I have to get something done, or where I, when I feel the compulsion to get something done, it's not a big distraction for me. And I would just sit down and just start writing. It it I I had just a very basic word document with with sort of dates, fragments of sentences, sort of things I had to remind myself to do. Because this book doesn't have years in it, um, I couldn't, you know, date things by years. So I kept track by, you know, year one, year two, year three, year four. And sometimes I would, you know, I would say, don't forget to include this. You mentioned this in part part one, you have to make sure to put this back in part four. Or Willem starts filming this particular movie in November, make sure that he's going to be done by, you know... Like consistency yes, issues. consistency issues. And that was a big part of it. And that way, it felt very much like directing a play or, or a movie where you really have to make sure that, you know, when the gun ap- appears in the first scene, that it somehow either goes off or gets put away in the third. So it, it, there was a lot of just tracking of, of my own details. Um, and that's really something I... I I kept an eye on. I mean, the time is measured in this book by anniversaries, you know, by Thanksgivings, by birthdays, by by different measures of time. And so in order to make that sort of elasticity of time work, I had to be fairly structured about how I was keeping track of it. Yeah, I find that in writing that time shifts, uh, especially if you're jumping a significant period of time, uh, are, are very difficult to do well without jarring the reader and when they're handled well and they feel seamless I'm, I'm always impressed by that as a reader where you're like oh you know they just jumped and i didn't even bat an eye yeah me too you, you have to be careful with it yeah me too i mean i always think that you know the reader will really go along with you in many many ways but i i think as a reader that the more sort of fantastical the book is the book's premises or its characters or its themes the more i really want something um i really want terra firma and that terra firma is the structure and it's the sense of sort of authorial timekeeping that if you think that someone is really watching out for the details so you the reader don't have to worry about them then you can kind of relax into the life of the book and forgive it i think a lot more yeah if you're if you're if you're worried about the time yeah then it's not a good sign. No, <laughs> as a that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and what about, um, you know, as, like as a related question to the issue of time, the very conscious decision to remove from the book anything that could mark it but politically. Yeah. There's no mention of 9-11 in the book. There's no, you know what I'm saying? The book kind of I do. exists I in mean, a the, timeless New York. That's right. And the, the New York of the book is really evoked by interior landscapes in both senses. So there's not a lot of descriptions of architecture or of scenery or of the exteriors of New York. What you have instead are the insides of apartments and, you know, of course, 
more figuratively, the insides of these characters. And when you take away, when you strip any fiction of historical markers of context in a way, what you're effectively doing is trapping the reader within the emotional lives, the interior lives of your characters. And it has the effect, I think, if, if you can do it correctly, of making the work feel intimate and also claustrophobic. And there really is nowhere else for the reader to go. They have to remain in this sort of, um, sort of, you know, closed circuit of a world that you've created for them. The other thing is, I just think it's sort of a cheat in, you know, contemporary naturalistic fiction when, and this, you know, happens quite a bit. You're reading a book and, and it, you know, then the book will announce to you, and then 9-11 happened, or then, you know, 2008 came and the stock, you know, and the stocks fell. And you know, it, and you, the reader, is supposed to fill in for the characters what they must be feeling or how the mood must have shifted. And it's just too, it's too easy in a way. It's its depending upon the reader's own emotional reactions to, own re- emotional reaction to history, which you, the writer, assume is going to be exactly like yours. And is A, often not the case. And B, you should, I think if you have a book about history, about recent history, you must have something to say about it. And this, that just wasn't the point of this book. All right, folks, there we go. That's this week's flashback from episode 401, which first aired on February 24th, 2016. I was talking with Hanya Yanagihara, best-selling author of three novels. And in the conversation excerpt that you just heard, we were talking about her book, A Little Life. You can listen to the full conversation episode 401 wherever you get your podcasts it is in the feed you can also listen on youtube once again hanya yanagahara's novels include to paradise a little life and the people in the trees all of which are available wherever books are available the other people podcast is offered freely if you had a good experience and you would like to support this show you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find the show. If you would like to get Other People gear, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, what have you, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. There are different colors, different sizes, women's sizes, men's sizes, There's even kids stuff. So if you want to get some other people apparel, you can do that at otherppl.com. If you would like to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can do that at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. I would love it if you would subscribe to the newsletter. Again, it's free. Finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is out there now in trade paperback ebook and audiobook editions i narrate the audiobook so i will read it to you it's called be brief and tell them everything so coming up on sunday there will be a new craftwork episode i'm going to be talking with author and editor chelsea hodson founder of a new indie press called rose books we are going to be talking about how to start your own indie press so stay tuned for that coming up on Sunday